0: Please bear with me this morning, I have a cold, so I'm praying that my voice does not give out. Someone has said that stories are soul food. Stories shape our imagination, which in turn shapes how we inhabit the world. A storied imagination drives technological progress, scientific hypothesis, and space exploration. Authors dreamed of putting a man on the moon long before we actually did this. Poets imagined an evolving world long before Darwin's theory of evolution. The imagination is a potent and world-shaping God-given tool. And we get nervous when we talk about imagination because we think make-believe. Especially when it comes to imagination and the Bible. You may not realize it, but stories shape your imagination. Stories from advertisements to podcasts to shows to movies, they all unconsciously shape the way you think and influence your decisions that reflect how you inhabit the world. This Christmas, I watched an ad by Chevy this year that was particularly moving. Maybe you saw it. A man, an elderly man, is hanging a wreath on a a barn. And he, puts a, he takes an old one down and he puts a fresh one up, and then he takes the old one and he puts it on a dusty pile on the workbench of a whole bunch of wreaths, signifying that he is, he's done this every year for many years. And then he looks over at his uh, dusty car, it's a Chevrolet of course, a convertible, And he goes in and he sits down in it and he wipes the dust off the steering wheel and he takes a picture of his wife, which by now we've realized has passed away. And he begins to tear up and he flashes back. He remembers driving in this convertible Chevrolet with his wife and the the bond that they had and the love that they had and he's sad. And then he leaves and he walks out of the barn and his daughter sees him doing this. And so the rest of the advertisement, she comes in the middle of the night and she takes the car, they restore it, they give it all its luster back, and then the next Christmas he goes to hang a wreath on the door again, and he opens it and he finds his car is all restored. He gets in it and he gets in with his daughter. And of course, it's, it's, it, it, the story is, is meant to draw you to want to buy a Chevrolet, Right? You want to have the same kind of experiences that this man had. And Chevy is not foolish. They know that these kinds of stories evoke our imagination and they pull on our purse strings. Right, uh, They drive us to go as we think. Well, if he has this kind of experience, uh, maybe if I have a Chevrolet, I'll have the same kind of experience. Now, the inconsistencies of the ad don't bother us because it works on a different level. Um, For the Chevy ad to work, it presupposes that you could have a car for 40 years, right? And that doesn't happen anymore, right? Cars have planned obsolescence. They only last for a few years. Not to mention, building the joy of your marriage on a vehicle is quite foolhardy uh, and a great recipe for divorce. Many a marriage has been dashed upon the rocks of consumerism as beauty and brawn fade, you end up chasing the ghost of youth. As Christians, we must examine the kind of stories that work on us. We must ask the hard question, what or who is shaping my imagination and how that affects my life, my vision of what God is calling us to? Is it getting the Chevrolet? Because if we're not careful, we're shaped more by advertisers and shows and movies, and other stories than we are by the word of God. See, God also tells stories. Stories of creation and fall and a good world wrecked by sin. He tells stories of wandering in the wilderness and dwelling in the shadow lands. But he also tells stories of redemption and exodus. Stories of inheriting a promised land. The Bible is not just ancient history, dry And dusty facts about an ancient people. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's a story that we are very much a part of. One that we have come into sort of towards the tail end of it. But we inhabit that story. And as I said, other stories are always vying for your attention. They have glossier covers. They come with sex and thrills. And they offer a salvation that looks attractive. But like Chevy, they can never meet their promise. Sometimes a culture tells the Christian story as the dominant world-shaping narrative. But as we in the West slide further into a post-Christian culture, we have to ask ourselves, how can we persevere in this situation when the Christian story is no longer dominant, when we're not being told that in the public square like we maybe used to? How do we persevere in a post-Christian culture in the face of so many rival stories? How do we sort them out? How do we ensure that the right one is forming us? That is what we're asking today. Poised as we are on the very start of this new year, a year brimming as it always is with possibilities, how can we prepare ourselves to meet the challenges of living in a post-Christian culture? And to answer that, I want to look at a particular moment in Israel's history where they're poised on the edge, not of a new year, but of entering into a new land. Maybe, and I want to look at this text through the metaphor of eating and suggest that it guide the way that we think about perseverance in our current cultural moment. If stories are soul food, what are you feeding yourselves I will make a plea then that you commit to nourishing yourself in the story, the faith-arousing Word of God in this new year. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to read that chapter in its entirety. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask that you would bless the meditation of the the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our heart. May they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our closest kinsman redeemer. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me paint a picture for you. Israel has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Years. Almost all of the previous generation are dead, the generation that experienced the wonders of the Exodus, but who in unbelief failed to take possession of the promised land. And because of this, God cursed them to wander in the desert until they all died. Then their children would go in and take possession of the land in their place. And what becomes clear is the wilderness is not. Just a curse on the previous generation, but it's also a test for their children. Notice in verse 2, he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, the wilderness is a place of testing. The wilderness is an uncultivated space lacking security, comfort, and provision. It's a place of chaos, the very antithesis of Eden, which is the model for a cultivated, fruitful garden sanctuary, a place where God dwells. You see, the promised land is a new Eden, described in fruitful terms as a good land. You heard that language in verses 7 through 10 as he describes all the wonders that they're going to inherit when they take possession of that promised land. Flowing with milk and honey, right? Whose rocks are iron. Whose hills they can dig copper out of. It's a good land. It signifies an Eden. In contrast, the wilderness is barren. It's a haunt for wild animals, but but it's an important place nonetheless. In many ways, Eden cannot exist, or at least not exist long, without a wilderness, without a wilderness experience. Israel wandered in a literal wilderness, but the theme is emblematic for walking through adversity and hardship, which we all have experienced. Now, we'll look at why that is in a moment. But for now, we are just noticing that God uses the wilderness to shape his people, sometimes corporately, as in the whole body of Israel, but also individually, as he brings us through hardship and adversity, through difficulties. Before being made right hand to Pharaoh, Joseph went through some wildernesses, slave to Potiphar, Wrongfully accused and imprisoned. In Psalm 105, in verse 18, it says Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. And listen to verse 19. Until what Hayyad said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Joseph had dreamed as a boy that his family would come and bow down to him. He dreamed that he would one day reign. But until that came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. That is, God put him in the wilderness. If you look throughout the pages of Scripture, there is scarcely any of the her- heroes of our faith who did not have some wilderness experience. David. Years and years. We'll see as we continue next week our series in First Samuel Wandering in the wilderness before he becomes king. Even though he's anointed and the rightful heir and Saul is not. He still has to wait in the wilderness. Jesus himself, before beginning his ministry, was tested too. Listen to how Mark puts it in Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Speaking about Jesus, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Do you notice the comparison? Jesus also spent not 40 years, but 40 days symbolically as he is recapitulating the story of Israel. But unlike Israel, he was faithful. And the Spirit is the one who drove him out into the wilderness. And that's so that Jesus... Our great high priest could be made like us so he can sympathize with with us. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And he learned obedience through what? Through suffering, through walking through the wilderness. To be, why, why is it? Why does God use this method? Why does God use the wilderness? Why does he bring us through such difficult times of testing? To see why God uses the wilderness experience, we look back again to our text in in Deuteronomy 8, in verse 2, and he says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And listen, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. God gave Israel reasons why he led them through the wilderness. To humble them. To test them. To see what was in them. To see whether they would keep and obey him. Now, what happens to a kid who inherits a lot of money? It's not always the case. But it, it happens enough that it becomes sort of a stereotype, right? He becomes reckless. He doesn't have humility because he didn't work to earn that money. He's just inherited it. And so he's entitled and he often wastes that money. He's not careful with it because he didn't gain it steadily by hard work. Instead, he's just been given it. Cotton Mather, that great Puritan pastor in early America, said, Religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. Prosperity tends to lead us away from dependence on God. That means that our, our faithfulness as a nation brought all this prosperity that we enjoy. And yet, what happens to the next generations? They take it for granted. They're not humble. And they haven't been tested in the wilderness to see what's within them. And this is the point of verse 11 through 20. God is warning Israel, you are about to go into a land that is wonderful. And you're going to take possession of places that you didn't do anything to gain. You just came in. They were already there. Vineyards, houses, fields, land, fruitfulness that I'm giving you. But you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted when you come in there to say, we did this. By the power of our own hands, we got this wealth. And you'll forget the Lord by turning away from His commands. So God brings His people through adversity, through the wilderness, because in the wilderness, you have to trust in God. You cannot make it on your own. You absolutely rely upon Him. Now, in times of prosperity, it doesn't seem that way, right? You feel like, I've, I've got this. It's like, tag, I'm in, God, you can take a seat, I've got this. But in the wilderness, you are desperate. You're holding on to God with everything you have. And your very sustenance you know comes from Him. Wilderness tries your faith. Will you cling to Christ in times of hardship and adversity? Again, this is both corporately and individually. We are several generations away from when faithfulness begat prosperity in America. We are, I dare say, that prosperity has eaten up what remained of faithfulness in America. We are now full way into a cultural moment of forgetting. Forgetting God. Forgetting that all that we have, all that we have inherited is from God. That the power to get wealth comes from God. We think that we have done it. That prosperity of America can be attributed to a good work ethic or some good Yankee ingenuity. But that's not the case. Any of you who know, or maybe you've been traveled overseas or you've worked overseas, you know. People work hard and have ingenuity in other parts of the country and they don't experience the prosperity that we have. It has nothing to do with that. Wealth comes from the Lord. And as verse 18 clarifies, the power to gain wealth comes from the Lord. I think I'm starting to see the trend down, but evangelicals have, for generations, looked longingly at the wicked flourishing and have aped ideas of success in gospel ministry from the market. And as a result, we have allowed a different story to shape what we see as success in gospel ministry. One that's determined by the bottom line, by numbers, by how much. And this has led Christian discipleship to be more about numbers than about depth. We can be characterized as being an inch deep and a mile wide. Because we have theologically watered down the truth in our churches so, as to accommodate the masses, we make it easy. And the reason why our once robustly Christian culture is, is now characterized as being post Christian are, are varied. There are many reasons why that happens. And I, I tried to trace some of those out in the lectures that I gave over the Reformation Day weekend. And I can say that the problem stems largely from the way that we read Scripture. We have allowed the cultural pressure from the Enlightenment thinking to influence the way that we read and therefore inhabit the story of Scripture. But the reason why we are in a post-Christian culture is interesting. It's not as important as knowing the bigger why. As in the purpose God is using for bringing us through this wilderness experience. And that is, of course, to... Develop a community of believers who in humility depend on God. That's what he said in verse 2. To humble you. To humble you. To see what was in your heart. To test you. To see whether you would obey. Dependence is not license. It's not the license to carry on living like God doesn't exist. Nor is it legalism. Cleaning up ourselves by our own efforts so that God might show us favor. Dependence on God is remembering the indicatives and the imperatives and the order matters. Did you notice in verse 14 that God rehearses the gospel? He tells them what he did for them. He brought them out of slavery. He led them in the wilderness. He delivered them from hardship. He fed them with manna. He gave them water from the rock, and in verse eleven, we remember, we remember the indicatives by rehearsing what God has done for us, how He delivered Israel from Egypt. That didn't that they're not uh, their keeping of the commands and His statutes is not what established the relationship. God had already called them and said, "You are My people," and He delivers them. From Egypt, from slavery. Their response, the imperative to what God has done, is by walking, is by remembering. And by how do they remember? They remember by keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which He had commanded them. So, in summary, we may say that God took them out of Egypt and told them not to live any longer like Egyptians. He gave them a new story to live by, to inhabit. But again, keeping God's command did not establish that relationship. God redeeming them from Egypt did that. The gospel did that. The indicative of the gospel is to look to Christ. Remember His atoning sacrifice. Rehearse the good promises that all find their yes and amen in Him. And the imperative of the gospel is to abide in Him. Is to walk and follow after Him. Keeping those two things is important. And getting the order right is is absolutely essential. The purpose of the wilderness is to get the world out of the church. You see, it took 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness, not to get out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of them. To get them to inhabit and live in the story that God was telling them. You are my people, and I am your God, and you will walk before me and be holy. The purpose of the wilderness is to have Christ formed in us. How does God do that? How does God get the world out of the church? How does God form Christ in us? This is the way that we endure testing. The center of what I want you to take away from this text revolves around the image of eating. God tells Israel in verse 3 And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live by bread alone. What happens when you eat? God uses the well-known analogy of eating to describe the kind of dependence that we have to have on God. When you eat, you take something, presumably something good for you that your body needs, and you ingest it into your body. And beginning in your mouth, you start a process of breaking down the food, turning it into stripping it of its usable nutrients. But your body, in somewhat mystical fashion, ferries to all the various places that you need it. The nutrients from the food give you life. The natural function of your body alerts you when you need to replenish with food. And God used that to describe the kind of dependence that we have to have on God. And used this very tangible analogy of manna. It's not even a food that they can just grow it's not something that they can say, I did that. God feeds them. There's no food in the desert. So even the daily food they needed comes directly from God. And there it was every day just for them to scoop up and eat enough for that day. And there was a double lesson for there for them. Everything they needed came from God. And more than food is needed to have life. They cannot live just by bread alone. but They must subsist on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this metaphor of eating gets taken up, especially by the prophets. Jeremiah in chapter 15, verse 16 says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And again, Ezekiel says the same thing. This is an extended section. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. He says, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked... Ezekiel says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll. Go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And again, the Apostle John picks up this the same thread of eating the word of God. And he says in Revelation 10 verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go! take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I would eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many people's and nations, and languages, and kings. So you see they're demonstrated for you what Moses is talking about. What God is trying to get the people of Israel to understand as they wandered in the wilderness. And that's that you must eat the Word of God. You must draw your sustenance from it. And I want to suggest two things from the metaphor of eating God's Word. First, I don't want to press the metaphor too far, but what happens to the food that you eat? All of it is incorporated into you. In a very real sense, you become what you eat. But the metaphor is meant to draw our attention to how insufficient a diet of just bread is. I don't mean that in some faddish keto way. I'm not not saying don't eat bread. I'm saying that food is inadequate to give you life. It can't meet the needs, the deepest needs that you have. For that, we need the Word of God. The kind of inhabiting of the Word suggested by this metaphor is the one where the Word of God is thoroughly incorporated into your life. And I've been saying inhabiting the Word instead of reading or hearing to include all the ways that we are in contact with the Word of God. That includes reading reading personally, reading together as a community. That includes singing the Word. That includes adorning our houses with the Word. But, it, but above all, putting the Word into practice. Walking out the Word. That's what it means to inhabit. Not just to hear, but to do. One 12th century monk said it this way, reading, as it were, Puts the solid food into our mouths. Meditation chews it and breaks it down. Prayer obtains the flavor of it, and contemplation is the very sweetness which makes us glad and refreshes us. Second thing that the metaphor of eating suggests is a relish for the word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we can say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God Himself. And how do we come in contact with God? How do we hear God speaking to us? In and through His Word. I have seen how excited some of you get over a meal, right? You, you're thinking about that old forge pizza with the fresh tomato basil. American cheese? Am I the only one? And you're excited, your mouth begins to salivate. Do you get that way over the Word of God? Do you desire it like you desire your meals? Do you approach the spiritual disciplines with such fervor? To borrow an expression from John Newton, which he used in one of his letters describing how we are in prayer, often he says, that we are dragged before God like a slave and we come away like a thief. Right? We don't want to be there, so we're kind of drugging. Okay, I'm going to pray. But then we get out of there as soon as we can. We try to take whatever we can get. right? And Is that how we approach our spiritual disciplines? Just so we can you know, get the satisfaction of checking off that Bible reading plan? Have no idea what you read, but I read it. And there's the record right there, God. You see, and it's so easy for us to turn our Bible reading plans, the good things that God uses as means of grace to build our faith. It's so easy for us to turn those into handles that we can get a hold of God with. That we can say, see, look, you owe me favor now. Now I don't have to go through the wilderness. I did my Bible reading. That's not the way it works. Israel did this with their sacrifices too. We don't allow the word of God to work on us. right? We're not inhabiting the word. And this is evident in our lives. is How quickly and in what perfunctory ways we spend time with God. An hour on Netflix is nothing if not a daily occurrence for us. Two hours on Facebook is the norm. But one hour in the presence of God... That's rare. And you're thinking, well, I'm I'm not I'm not the pastor. That's your job. But imagine if you could see how spiritually malnourished you were. Imagine if you, just like you can see your physical form, how out of shape you might be or how in shape you are. Just imagine if you could see that spiritually. Some of us might be bloated out because we've been filling ourselves with spiritual junk food. We've had a steady diet of man-made processed fluff, stuff like your best life now, purpose-driven life, or girl, wash your face. And We think that that is good enough, but it won't build faith in us. There may be practical stuff in those books that might help you, but spending an hour with Rachel Hollis is not spending an hour with God. Others of you might be so malnourished you look like you just emerged from a concentration camp. You're literally starving to death from lack of having God's Word. Lack of inhabiting the Word of God. The beginning of the new year is an excellent time to, to take a spiritual fitness test. We're already making resolutions about our weight, about what we will eat physically, and how we need to get back into physical shape. We need to do the same thing with the spiritual disciplines. We need to ask ourselves, do I have the same kind of drive and motivation to get into the Word of God? To attend to the story and let it shape me. So my plea with you in this new year is, eat this book. Eat this book and let your life inhabit the Word of God. So that you are shaped by its story. So that it comes out of you. So that if you're cut, like they said of John Bunyan, if he was cut, he would bleed Bible. Would you bleed Bible if you were cut? Does the Word of God so flow out of you because you have steeped yourself in it? Make that your resolution this year. Amen? Amen. And the And the Lord gives us visible words. In this table. This table is a visible Word. The Word made flesh. And we have been given this as a reminder to stir our faith. Like manna in the wilderness. So that we learn to depend and rest on God. To remind ourselves of the indicatives of the Gospel. What Jesus has done for you. He's given His very life for you. He walked through the wilderness... Perfectly, with no sin, enduring every temptation that Satan gave him and standing firm. And then he suffered and died on your behalf as your substitute. Do you believe that? Then this meal is for you, it's a reminder. That by faith you have been united to Christ. It's a a token that you live, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's just bread, just juice. But these elements God uses to nourish, spiritually nourish our faith. And if, if that doesn't describe you, if you can't say, I believe that Jesus was my personal substitute. That he died on my behalf and paid the penalty for my sins. And this meal is not for you. In fact, it would be dangerous for you to eat. This is a family meal for those who are united to Christ. And for them, it does nourish and strengthen their faith. But if that doesn't describe you, then it would be eating and drinking judgment to yourself. So, as we come today to this table, before we distribute the elements, While the elements are being distributed, we're going to sing a hymn which is printed in your bulletin. So as the elders come forward...